1: It's Nightside with Dan Ray on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. Good evening. Welcome. Yes, this is Jordan in for Dan tonight and tomorrow. He'll be back on Wednesday. And the telephone number here, as always, is 617-254-1030 or 888-929-1030. It is MLK Day, and though we thought we'd uh, focus on the import of it for the first hour and get some comments from you and get some feedback from a guest that we're trying to line up at the moment but uh a very important uh celebratory day when people reflect on what the messaging was and the messaging really was impressive uh, not only the i have a dream speech but throughout his career and uh one of the things that of course you, you have to be living under a rock to not know that there's a new monument a new statue if you will celebrating martin luther king called the embrace that's on. uh downtown in the uh, Boston Common, but I really wanted to focus a bit, uh, and we do have a guest coming up from Boston University, hopefully, we did want to focus a bit on the the key takeaway from the I've Got a Dream speech for many Americans then and now, and that is the simple phrase, content of character. And uh, I really don't have anything prepared other than to suggest that maybe, just maybe, we ought to revisit Not only the entire speech, which is worth hearing and reading, but that one element, that one phrase, that one important, uh, almost concluding mantra that really hit home with a lot of people. Some people have suggested that uh, the quote that has to do with judging people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Some people have suggested that that uh, is a device that's a tool for those who oppose affirmative action, oppose racial uh, equality, et cetera, et cetera. I think they're hunting for something that isn't necessarily there. But what King meant and what we really should reflect on is is character. And whether it be celebrities, political leaders, um, musicians, athletes, or your local school principal or your local uh, minister, whoever it might be, Ultimately, when all is said and done, what really matters is the character of that individual. And how do you define character? What do you define good character as? I don't think it's that subjective. I really don't. I think it's a very easy sort of objective thing to talk about. Character is um, being forthright, being honest. And all of us are are sinners. We all know that. Everyone lies to a certain extent, some more than others. But uh, being honest, being forthright, being direct. Uh, Concerned for the, uh, the fate of others. Willing to help others when when able. Uh, doing the right thing when no one's looking. It's my favorite definition. Uh, it's not original by any stretch. It's been said by many. Doing the right thing when no one's looking. Um, not stealing from your employer or stealing from even the government and stealing from the tax man but uh... paying your fair share being a person of good character sticking up for what's right um, fighting for justice even in small ways So, the character content question have we forgotten it i'm not suggesting you me and people listening but has the culture forgotten have we gone so far afield from sixty years ago that that one brilliant phrase, that thing that we all hope we will get to, where it won't matter what color your skin is or what religion you are or what gender you are, any of that stuff. What really matters is whether or not you live up to the ideals that Martin Luther King was striving for. I believe strongly that there are people who are of a different race, a different breed, a different nationality, who are a lot more capable and a lot more talented in so many areas than I will ever be and I also believe that some of these people are indeed people of great character but I also at the same time am uh, judgmental in the sense that I can look at a person and suggest that person is not necessarily of, of let's put it this way uh, I'll use the word good, good character And my definition of good character, I don't think there's much you can debate with me on, but maybe you'd like to. 617-254-1030. Doing the right thing. Being there for other people. Standing up for what is right. Uh, Defending your family. uh, Supporting family values. Supporting uh, the freedom for others to do what they do, and as long as they're not infringing or hurting other people. Um, And... Generally, uh, treating people uh, with the golden rule in play, that is a significant step in terms of character. But have we lost it? Has it gone away in the public sphere? I think it has. 617-254-1030 is the telephone number. Lines are wide open. Martin Luther King Day. I mean, there's a lot we can talk about in this hour. Um, Another question that I pose to you is the progress that we've made and whether or not people truly understand that we've made incredible progress certainly not since just martin luther king's days but since the days of slavery the horrific uh, cultural phenomenon that was slavery and look at how far we've come yes there are problems yes there are steps that need to be taken to improve the situation for all but uh... We aren't living in, in 1895, Jim Crow, south across the nation. Uh, we can fix problems. We've proven it before. And I think Martin Luther King was a a very positive thinker. I thought he brought to bear in his amazing oratory the idea that we can do better and we can improve from generation to generation, and I believe we have. All that being equal, all things being equal, the uh, problems exist, because they always will, but they've been mitigated by hard-working people of good character. 617-254-1030. We'll go to some calls right now. Again, we were uh, hoping to have a guest on to also comment on the uh, archival writings of Martin Luther King, but let's start with Suzanne, first up on WBC's Nightside. Jordan in for Dan. Hello, Suzanne.
2: Well, good evening. Uh, I believe Jordan... You, Dan, Ray, and Morgan have character. I am an 84-year-old lady in assisted living. I have lived many places. And I also try, and even my father and mother, when we made our grand tour of Europe, we declared even the soap and our soap dishes on our way back and my late husband, I would do the customs form when we went to England or Europe, and you know there was no Paris dress or pair of slippers that I could bring in without declaring, because Red would notice. So that's just all I have to
1: say. Uh, well, I think it's it's both large scale and small scale. And I'll say it over and over again, We, uh, I certainly am not perfect, and nobody on planet Earth that I know of is. But if you strive to do what Martin Luther King hoped we would all do, and that's judge people and judge yourself on the content of your character, I think that's a great thing. Suzanne, always thanks to hear from you. I really have to take this break, but I wish you a very, very pleasant evening, and keep listening. We have a lot of really good stuff tonight, okay? Thank
0: you very much, Jordan. Thank thanks you. for taking my call. Good
1: we will take a break, and we have a guest coming up, and I'm really excited about chatting with him. Uh, he is with the Howard Gottlieb Archival Research Center at Boston University, and we'll chat with him about MLK's uh, legacy right after these words.
0: You're on Nightside with Dan Ray on WBZ, Boston's news radio.
1: 819, Jordan Rich filling in for Dan tonight, and tomorrow night Dan returns on Wednesday. The number is, again, 617-254-1030. And we have a wonderful guest joining us now, and I appreciate his patience. His name is Ryan Hendrickson, Assistant Director for Manuscripts at the Howard Gottlieb Archival Research Center at Boston University. And we'll have you explain what that's all about, your gig there. But, Ryan, thank you for joining me on MLK Night.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here.
1: Now um you're involved with manuscripts and uh the uh, the amount of material that's in the collection that was donated by the family and the uh and the church and so forth uh, must be voluminous. Can you tell us how many pieces of material or roughly how much there is in that collection?
0: Sure, I'll tell you a little bit about the uh, how it got here and also the contents of it. So mm-hmm. the the key thing to know why it's at Boston University is that that was his alma mater? Uh, he came to Boston in 1951 to study at Boston University um, to, for his uh, degree in um, systematic theology. He was a, he was a student at the School of Theology at Boston University, which at the time was the preeminent school uh, of of BU. Uh, back then, BU was much more of a of a kind of a community. Uh, commuter school uh, than it is now, um, and it was a big deal to be a doctoral student at the BU School of Theology in the 1950s, especially as uh, a black student from the South. That, that was a huge deal, uh, and when um, when Dr. King was, was studying there, um, he... With the Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. at the school and also in Boston. Uh, the biggest one probably was uh, meeting Coretta Scott King, obviously, uh, who was a student at uh, the Newman Conservatory at the time, who was a singer. Uh, and the story of how they met and then how they, they connected is a whole other one. It's kind of interesting. We can talk about it later if you want. But um, what happened was that um, Dr. King uh, spent about four years uh, studying in Boston, and they were very formative years. So when he moved on, uh, right after school, he went to Montgomery, Alabama, and he immediately became uh, one of the leaders of the Montgomery bus boycott. Right. So as time went on, uh, Dr. King stayed in close contact, with, especially with his major professor, uh, a man named Dr. Harold DeWolf. And DeWolf had been talking with King uh, for a while uh, in, the, in the early 60s about what are you going to do with all of the documentation that you have, uh, the people who wrote you letters, um, the notes that you've taken, the records of your travels, what are you going to do with that? And King said, well, he hadn't really thought much about it. So DeWolf, uh, the story goes, actually just rented a van and drove down to Atlanta in in about 1964 uh, and loaded up some uh, file cabinets of King's papers with his blessing, um, drove them back up to Boston, and um, the Boston... University was in the process of just building its uh, its university library, uh, in that in that area. So, about 1964, that was when the papers really uh, were were at BU and they were they were starting to be made available and they were starting to be cataloged. Um, in terms of the size of the collection, it's not one of our bigger collections because we have some collections that are hundreds and hundreds of, of boxes and they they would take up a whole room. Uh, this collection is is a modest size collection, but it's one of those collections where everything in the collection is significant because of its association with Dr. King or with the civil rights movement. So if you wanted to estimate, you'd say, oh, I don't know, maybe 80,000 pieces of paper. Uh, What that really means, it's hard to say. Uh, But then as you go through it, uh, you see letters from other people that were uh, major figures in the civil rights movement, um, other people that were just common people that wanted to be involved in the civil rights movement. Um, and you see papers of organizations that he was associated with and, and things like the Freedom Rides that he was linked to. Uh, and you start to realize um, the value that, that's there in those
1: papers. Uh, I happen to know, of course, uh, Elie Wiesel's papers are there and many other Uh, very famous, important people, uh, and this is a very prestigious organization you work with. Maybe before we close out in the hour you can talk more about the general uh, day-to-day there, which is pretty exciting. But, you know, what Mm -hmm. strikes me, and I I happen to have a very good friend who's an archivist up in Maine and uh, he may be listening. Mm -hmm. What strikes me is, King is a relatively young man in 1964, um, and to have generated that much material that someone thought was worthy, uh, first of all, that professor was very um, forward-thinking, I-, I believe. He knew he had something important to preserve. But uh, is it unusual for somebody at that age to uh, to build an archive?
0: Well, I think King was unusual in that way in general. Um, you know, he graduated high school, I think, when he was 15 or 16. Um, you know, he... He went to Morehouse College as a young man. Right. From there, he went to Crozier Theological Seminary. Still, as a young man, um, I mean, he he accomplished everything he accomplished in his life. I think before the age of forty, which is a little intimidating for those of us who are <laughs> over forty. Just <laughs> yes. look back on that. <laughs> um, no, he, he no, yes, he, indeed. Yeah. he was. He was always uh, one one person I talked to who is a uh, professor. B. You said he was always in a rush. Um, there was one incident, um, I remember exactly what year this was, this would have probably been 1956 or so, he was actually he was doing a book signing um, and uh, for his book, Stride Toward Freedom, which was all about the Montgomery bus boycott, and a woman who, who was mentally ill uh, actually came up and, and stabbed him. This was in, in Harlem. Right. And he almost died. And he, he talked about this in the very last speech he ever gave, um, how close he was to actually dying. And, uh, you know, we have records of you know, after that, he's in his hospital bed and he and he's still working and he's constantly he, he never kind of stops. And then but you see letters from people who knew him who say, like, well, this will force you to slow down a little bit <laughs> uh. and and take a pause because um, he just once he starts going, you know, in, in about 55, 56, he just kind of he never he never takes much of a break or a vacation um, because it was always there was always so much more uh, to do. So he, he was young, I think. Um, for 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 sort of the role that he played uh, on the world stage, um, so we in a way it's it's lucky that we we have anything that survived uh, from that.
1: We're talking here with Ryan Hendrickson, assistant director for manuscripts at the Howard Gottlieb Archival Research Center at BU, and he is uh, dealing on a on a regular basis with the papers, letters, and much more in the Martin Luther King collection. Uh, th- it includes photographs, I would imagine.
0: Am I right? Well, it's, so this is interesting because the material that we, see, we received from, from Dr. King um, was a lot of his office files because he was still working, right? So a lot of what we got are letters from, from, from various things. Um, uh, fine. We got some financial records. Uh, we got um, all kinds of things. We didn't get that many photographs because, um, you know, he didn't really collect photographs of himself uh, in his own papers, if that makes sense. Uh. Um, um, so what we didn't get were, were some of the more personal things. There is another collection of his papers um, in Atlanta at Morehouse College. That it's um, it's at the Atlanta University Center uh, Library down there, the Woodruff Library. Um, and they may have some more photographs. They have like his personal library, for example. So they have records that we don't have. Our records really only go up to about 64, 65, and then they stop. So everything after that is is going to be elsewhere. That sometimes what, happens with, with yeah. people, that their records get split up that way.
1: Ryan, what can one learn from, uh, you mentioned office paperwork. Uh, it sounds mundane, but it's the office paperwork of one Martin Luther King. Uh, is it poured over and studied by you and your team? And um, What kinds of things can we and have we learned from his papers? There? <laughs>
0: Well, that's really that's a good question. So, one of the things that you you sometimes can tease out if you are somebody who works with primary sources, which is what a lot of researchers do—historians, scholars, um, anybody who's who's doing that kind of research—and from from you know undergrad students on up, um, what what they will sometimes find and tease out are small details that would have been missed in a history book, right? Um, One of the the real pleasures of doing archival research, is finding things, making discoveries uh, that no one else has really looked at. And even in the King Collection, there are pockets of uh, information and material that maybe no one else has really examined. Uh, for example, um, you know, he took a trip to, um, to India mm. uh, at one point in his, in his life because he, he was very influenced by the work of, of Mahatma Gandhi. Obviously, that was a huge influence on his life. Um, and when he got the chance to, to to travel to India firsthand, he he took it, and he and Coretta uh, went there. Um, I think that was that was in the the late 50s. Um, and the, the the records of that trip and the writings that he generated and the, and the letters from people that he met or people who wanted to talk to him they tell a whole story, in and of themselves. Um, and those are stories that little details and things that you may not find. Um, You know, in a a textbook about him or a book about his his civil rights work in the United States, Um, there's letters uh, from people, telegrams of support, for example, that, you know, they're not from famous people, but they give you a sense of the scope, the scale of the movement, the the scope of the number of people that were involved or wanted to be involved in it. But you, you learn things and you glean things that you wouldn't get from a book on a shelf that can sometimes be the most valuable part of it.
1: Our number here is 617-254-1030. This is Nightside, Jordan filling in for Dan. And with us on the line is Ryan Hendrickson. He's with the Howard Gottlieb Archival Research Center at Boston University. We're talking about the collection that exists there of Martin Luther King's. Um, Much of it is is stuff that uh, other historians might not have an opportunity to access or may not think first and foremost of looking at, but uh, Ryan and his crew do and it's uh, a wonderful teaching tool and when we come back along with taking some phone calls and questions and comments um, I'd, I'd like to have you uh, assess as a historian and as an archivist the progress made and whether or not Martin Luther King's uh, sort of forward thinking was reached and I, I believe it has been in many cases doesn't mean we're not needing to do more work but I'd love to get your take on it um, so, stand by, Ryan. This is WBZ, 617 We will return with much more right here on Nightside. It's Nightside
0: with Dan Ray on WBZ, Boston's news radio.
1: Welcome. Dan is on vacation a couple of nights this week, tonight and tomorrow night, and then he returns on Wednesday. This is Jordan filling in, 617 I want to go to some phone calls, but also, before we do that, with my guest Ryan Hendrickson from the uh, Boston University Gottlieb archival Research Center um, having an opportunity to look at all this material and and keep uh, track of the the very extensive archives really gives you a sense as the man and his work and uh, and the, the cascade of success he was having before he was cut down what does that tell you about where we are today looking at all of that um, i'm going to call it minutia. i don't mean that in a negative light what does it
0: tell you about today well it's there's there's a couple things you can get from it one was um just how much work was involved in with lucky landslots you can get lucky just
2: about anywhere
0: dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom
1: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Organizing um, the protests and communicating to mass numbers of people. There was a lot of pr involved there was a lot of outreach there was a lot of fundraising um things that you know you think of as like the, the sort of the more dreary aspects of it mm-hmm. but um it's all vitally important so the the key was how do you recruit people that were good at that and how do you, you keep them on that on your your team um this is where you find some of the, teach- the the people that are not as well known people like uh, ella baker who is a kind of a genius at at organizing. Um, people like Baird Rustin, uh, who organized the March on Washington, for example, and was really King's right-hand man for, for a long time. Well, they had they had some issues with each other. People like Wyatt T. Walker, who's not well-known at all, who was really indispensable to uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. You you start to see people emerge from the background, um, and then you start to see, you know, the way that, 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 that King's role, how he sees himself is uh, as someone who is who is not supposed to be an icon. Um and what being a leader means is to organize the people that then help organize the movement. Um and it's you have overlapping groups like the Students for Nonviolent uh, Coordinating Committee overlapping with King's group and they overlap with other groups and um a kind of nexus forms around these ideas about um organizing people for to to get the right to vote. For example, which is unfortunately still something that seems to be a contested issue uh, for many people. Um, being able to travel across state lines, being able to use public transportation uh, in a basic way—things uh, again that, uh, if you talk about progress, things that in some ways, you know, we really have made huge strides. Um, and then you also get the sense too of the the scale of the ambition of, of King's project and the civil rights project which wasn't just to improve the legal status of people. It was to change human relations between people in the United States and maybe even in the world. Um, You know, if you're talking about expanding concepts of racial equality, not just in the United States, but also uh, around the world, then you're talking about, um, you know, colonies that are now gaining independence. King was very connected to what was going on in Ghana, for example. When you're talking about whole... Communities in the United States that are going through this process of having to reconceptualize themselves and and revamp their uh, their public spaces, their transportation, um, their accommodations, everything, and it's you know it it, you also really it brings home to you how recent all of this was. It was all within living memory. Um, This was. My parents' generation, right? It, was, it wasn't It was even my grandparents' generation. It was my parents' generation.
1: On the 50s and and, 50s. and it's so interesting, and, and I'm only cutting you off because we're time short here, but yeah. it's so interesting, Ryan, that uh, this individual human being, uh, granted surrounded by people that he was able to foster for his team, and he he was a good leader in that respect, but he was there at the time when everything had to happen. I mean, you had desegregation. Uh-huh. That was just a, a a pipe dream, but you also had violence in the South. You had all kinds of things. Blacks and whites couldn't even marry in some states. All of this sort of comes together in between 55 and 65 or 68 when he mm-hmm. finally loses his life to that bullet. It, it's just a re- remarkable. We talked about him being a young man uh, having archives, but his life was compressed into a few short years, but lots of things going on. Yeah,
0: there, there's something, There's something, uh, and, and you, you can see this from, even among people who are very serious, dry scholars, there's something prophetic about the, the career that Dr. King has, um, in the sense that a, a prophet sort of calls people to uh, a sense of challenging their assumptions, thinking about the world that they live in, and imagining something that could be better. Um, and this is this 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 was uh, you know in nineteen in the nineteen fifties to imagine the world of the a world in which um you know the, the the absolutely like you said the world of real true brutal violence could could somehow transform into a, a world of racial equality we still haven't reached that yet um, but but uh, you can you can see that King sees it he can imagine it and so much of the power I think of his work is to convey that to to the people who hear him and see him and they feel it and to share that is really remarkable
1: indeed let's go to some calls and i appreciate the callers being patient so that you and i could chat a little bit here's neil checking in on wbz neil welcome you're on with ryan from the gottlieb center
2: uh hello um um i was focusing on the word character uh, I, I I thought that's uh, maybe in my haste. I thought that's what you were focusing. Oh, on.
1: but by all means, I I brought that up okay. when we were waiting to bring Ryan on. I brought up that. Um, part I
2: apologize of the for that, but um, that's okay. But, okay, but I, it's an interesting word to me always, it, and I don't know the Greek origin, but it means like you know when people say, "Well, that's not etched in stone," but its character it is figuratively etched in stone because it means like to etch or carve on a scat- statue. And um, just one brief example, Shakespeare in Sonnet 108 says, What's in the brain that inked make character, that hath not figured to me my true spirit. So the characters, the character letters, they, they evolve out of the sense of the etching, and the etching is like what's strong in you, what will remain in you. And the example that I have in my own, in my own personal experience, uh, reading experience, is uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. When George Harris, I believe, he's the escapee and he wants to escape to freedom, and the Quakers help him, and he's he's very intelligent, and he says, but I don't want you to risk your life to help me. And they said, well, you don't understand, we have to. And they says, they'll take your land, they'll maybe even put you in jail. He says, we have to, you know, it's, it's just um, it's just part of us. And so to me, that was uh, character. That's like people, you know, argue, say, well, well, God wants you to do this, and God wants you to do that, and that's very problematical to me, but that's my one great example at least the quakers believe it and i said well if they put us in jail we just that's what will happen but we have to help you and that, that would be an example of character something that stays it's more than a tendency it's more than just being nice once in a while but that's your your essence and, and
1: well, lovely lovely treatise on the subject and uh, i think uh, neil as ryan said earlier there was so much influence from gandhi uh... and his approach to uh to Talking up to the man, and and, and Gandhi proved it could work. Uh, obviously,
2: right. so can I? Can I add just one brief thing? That the is it the professor? I'm sorry. I just wanted the example of always being in a hurry. Samuel Johnson said that John Wesley was always in a hurry. He liked to talk to him and fold his legs, but John Wesley always, you know, he, he was working so hard on the the new Methodism that. Um, he always was off to somewhere else. So that just reminded
1: me of that. The king being so, so nonstop in his adventures. Thank you for the call. Very interesting. Well, thank you nice, very much. Nice Thanks perspective. And I was talking about, uh, right before the first break, I was mentioning the content of character part of the speech, which has always stuck with me and millions of others. So we're talking with... Uh, the gentleman who is the assistant director for manuscripts at the Howard Godlieb Archival Research Center at Boston University, Ryan Hendrickson. Um, is there any material in the archives that has to do with uh, uh, his his being followed by the FBI or any a sense that he was under surveillance? Anything like that that wound up in your archives? Uh,
0: no, that's a really good question. Um, although I... I do know that when I started working at the archive in about the year 2000 um there was a there was a, a guy there who'd been there since the, the early 70s actually maybe the late 60s so he w- he w- he was there when um the FBI would essentially send agents to go through the papers and mm-hmm. he, he said you could always tell because they were these it was, you know, it was the hippie era, and there were these guys who come in with with real, you know, flat <laughs> top, clean cut guys in suits, and they'd be like, "Oh, I'm a student at BU. I'd really like to do some research in the King papers," and you'd say, "Sure, no problem." Yeah. Um, set them up, and they would go through them. The the thing that you won't find in those King papers is a lot of personal things. There's no love letters. Um, there's really nothing like that. These were these were like working papers for the most part. Um, I think. You would have to go probably to the King Center in Atlanta uh, to find anything personal, and I think that's probably going to be the Coretta Scott King Papers, which is you, you mentioned, all other collections.
1: You mentioned a little while ago the importance of organization and fundraising. So a lot of the material at the archival uh, office that we're talking about at BU, does it have to do with... Uh, Budgets, and how do we get enough money to buy you know rent buses to bring people down, or is it that
0: kind of stuff uh, yeah well, some of it that that sounds pretty dry, but for example, if you go through the material in the Montgomery bus boycott collection, mm-hmm. you'll see there's a piece of paper that's got a list of names uh, and a list of addresses, and on its own, it might not look like much, and then you realize that these are lists of people that are going to help carpool for. <laughs> People who were boycotting the Montgomery buses, all of whom were breaking the law, because they're you know the the local Montgomery authorities decided that they you know oh it turned out it was against a lot of boycott and if you're aiding the boycott then you're breaking the law so sure. they had to go through all kinds of you know workarounds to not get caught um, and then it becomes a remarkable document. It's a historical document of people that were in their own small way contributing to. The, the, when it became the first major protest of the civil rights movement, um, and so th- it depends on the context you can you can kind of see things in a different light when that happens yeah that's that's the cool aspect of
1: the archival uh investigation it it's not uh hitting you over the head. this is uh a, b and c it's sometimes a little more fuzzy, but you dig deeper, you understand mm-hmm. the context of the times um i I guess the the most celebrated speech of of the twentieth century right up there with uh, nothing to fear but fear itself and Kennedy's speech and Reagan tear down the wall and all those great political speeches is the speech on the mall. What kind of uh, archival information exists? Because that was 63, I guess, right?
0: Uh. Right. Well, see, this this is actually very interesting. I'm glad you asked me this because one of the things that we get as questions is, do you have his original draft of this speech? And we don't have it. In fact, nobody really has this. Um, and in fact, the, the section that he spoke at the end, which is the part that everyone remembers, because this is this, I have a dream speech, right? That wasn't written down at all. Mm. That, that was actually something that he delivered on, on the, on the spot. Uh, the way it worked is that supposedly he, he had a whole speech written out. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a remarkable speech, right? It's, it's still very, very powerful. Uh, there's no single draft of it, um, but he barely had any time, actually, to prepare any remarks because it was such a huge undertaking, just just the march itself. So um, as he got to the end of the text, um, Mahalia Jackson, the great gospel singer, uh, was there, and she had already sung a, a spiritual I've been buked and been scorned right before he spoke. And then right as he got to the end, she said, "Well, will tell me about the dream, Martin. Mm. Uh, and he kind of pause for a second and then he said that's when he he starts into that whole section where he says i have a dream today and that, the whole rest of the speech he gives um extemporaneously in that moment if you can imagine that it it it, it
1: speaks of his uh, abilities as an orator but also as a minister i mean the, it was I, I don't care who you are you cannot s- s- take your eyes off of it if you're watching it or hearing it because it's it's so captivating, and it not to mention it ryan it it appears to be just off the cuff uh, mm. from his heart, and uh, even if it wasn't it it's so beautifully delivered, so that actual written text does not exist as far as we know
0: that's oh, right there um, there's a there's a few scraps here and there, and it's actually even worse with the um the letter from Birmingham jail uh supposedly he wrote that on pieces of the newspaper. Uh, he wrote a draft of that while he was in jail, um, but that didn't survive um, after he got out, so we don't have uh, his sort of drafts of that. We do have, though, if you if you were at the papers in Boston, you would see drafts of the, uh, other speeches and sermons that he gave and uh, articles, other writings that he had. So we do have you know, first, second, third drafts of, of other pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that that piece we don't have. Let's do this,
1: a very quick final break, and then I want to come back and ask you a bit more about the center itself and the access that people can get and so forth, uh, fascinating work you're doing and important work as well. This is Nightside, Jordan in for Dan Ray. We'll continue right after these words.
0: It's Nightside with Dan Ray on
1: WBZ Boston's News Radio. Good evening here on Martin Luther King Day. We are discussing the Martin Luther King archives at Boston University at the Gottlieb Center and with me of of course is Ryan Hendrickson the assistant director for manuscripts there and before we uh, wrap up and you've been really kind to spend some time with us we really appreciate it can you share with our audience and me how the center works uh, obviously it must be available to students I'm, I'm saying obviously I don't know maybe yeah. you can explain who has access and how the public can find out things and also I'm asking you to do a lot here also tell us about some of the other well-known uh, individuals who have their papers there
0: um, so, I'll just give you a very quick rundown. Um, the, the center was started in about 1964, and um, the King Collection actually was really the first um, collection of manuscripts that BU received that started the, the center. The, the founding director of the center was a man named Howard Gottlieb, Dr. Howard Gottlieb, and uh, he passed away in 2005, and it's, it's named for him. And his real idea for starting the center was to collect Figures from contemporary life, the 20th century, um, starting in about 1965 66, that no one else really was collecting at the time, um, and and so he would sometimes pick out people at the very beginnings of their careers. Um, Dan Rather is a good example. We have his papers. Um, he he started talking to Dan Rather um, in the in the early 70s. Hmm. Uh, he also uh, David Halberstam is another great uh, you know uh, uh, journalist him. who. He, he talked to David Halberstam in the, I think, in the late 60s uh, and started sending his material. Uh, I mean, so we have hundreds of boxes of his material. Um, we also have, uh, like you mentioned, the Ellie Wiesel Collection, who was a Butte professor uh, for several years. Um, that's a massive collection in multiple languages. Uh, that's another one that I cataloged, actually, alongside with the, the King wow. Collection. Um, and some not not everyone is affiliated with uh, Boston or Boston University, uh, but some but there are some interesting local figures. Um, William Monroe Trotter is someone that people might know, uh, a real a towering figure in civil rights history himself, uh, based in Dorchester, Massachusetts, uh, publisher of the Boston Guardian. Uh, really, if you don't know him, he's an amazing figure to to know about. Um, so there's some people from popular culture. We have a big Isaac Asimov collection, for example, huge collection of his material. Um, and people from, from the arts, from humanities. We have a whole section of collections just based around the history of nursing as a profession. So there's a lot there, uh, more than I could really even go into, but it's over 2,000 individual collections. Uh, some of them are pretty small, some of them are, are huge, as, as well as thousands and thousands of uh, rare books um, that, you know, can that basically bound volumes. And, and the, how does the
1: public uh, yeah. connect to the archives and students and so forth? How does that work?
0: Well, the way that it works generally is, uh, you would contact us uh, to see if you if, if you wanted to make an appointment, what you wanted to see. Generally, the the first thing to do is is go to, is see if you can get some information about about us first. Uh, if you want to go to uh, our website, it's um, it's slash library uh, From there, you can usually find the link to where we are, the Howard Gottlieb. Archival Research Center, it's, and it's one T in Gali, which is unusual. Um, if you see if you see something you really want, you can write us at archives at bu. edu, um, and you can ask us questions about the material. We're only open for in-person research two days a week right now, Mondays and Tuesdays, and we're usually booked up pretty solid. So you might have to be prepared um, to to be patient to actually get in the door if there's something you want you want to see um, but we're, we're happy to answer questions and, um, help you out if we can. Well, you helped us out tonight
1: with, uh, a, a different take on the Martin Luther King Day story. I mean, there's so much to this man's contributions mm-hmm. and his life and his personality and his writings, but, uh, a, a look even beyond the, 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 obvious is really what you're doing. And it really is insightful. Ryan, thank you so much. I, I wish you the best. And I know your work, uh, continues. And, um, you you must love paper. You got to be a paper lover, right?
0: <laughs> it's it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> Good for it's been you. Around for for hundreds of years, it's going to be around forever. Thank you I, so much. This was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: It was a pleasure. Take care, Ryan Hendrickson, Assistant Director for Manuscripts at the Howard Gottlieb Archival Research Center at Boston University. Not only uh, is this Monday Martin Luther King Day, but apparently, and I did not know any of this until this morning, the third Monday in January is uh, allegedly the most depressing day of the year. And was coined Blue Monday back in 2004 by a British psychologist. We're going to talk about this um, and not make light of it. We're going to talk about seasonal affective disorder and uh, whether or not uh, it's 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 a well, it is a real phenomenon that affects many, many, many people. So we'll talk a little bit about that and uh, dispel the myths about Blue Monday. This is Jordan Rich in for Dan Ray. Dan is on vacation till Wednesday and we will be here to keep you company right here on WBZ.
0: 18 plus.